0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So, what does the Bible say about geology? Whose fault is it anyway? Psalm 104, if you were to turn there, not only is it a wonderful psalm that talks about how God is intimately involved in different careers. So he talks about... Feeding animals, he talks about animal husbandry. He talks about water distribution, but it also talks about our world and the form of our world, the terrain. If you look at Psalm one hundred four, starting in verse five, scriptures say that He established the earth upon its foundations, so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep sea as with a, excuse me, as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains the waters were standing above the mountains. Verse 7, they fled at your rebuke. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Verse 8, the mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary so that they will not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. Talking about the waters, of course. Centuries after the Noahic flood, the psalmist plainly ascribe the stability, shape of terrain, and the location of waters to the Creator. Now, neither the psalmist or Noah walked along the Santa Cruz Mountains. They did not walk along the Appalachians, nor did they go across any of the mighty features. No, there were no Alps, there were no Rockies at the time that Noah walked the earth. We get a glimpse into the different world in Genesis chapter 1, 9 through 10, On day three of the creation week, God gathered the waters together in one place, separate from the dry land. Somewhere on this land was a lovely place called Eden, out of which four great rivers flowed. Nothing like that exists today. Have you ever wondered what Noah's world was like before the flood? Genesis 6 through 9. The fragments that survived the flood make it possible to begin piecing together the puzzle. Well... The scriptures record and evidence indicates that the continents have moved about, broken apart, and crashed together. But the basic pieces have remained constant. If you look at the three basic models of our globe, there are three, Rodinia, Pangaea, and today what we know in our number of continents. In Rodinia, the pre-flood supercontinent, there was geologic evidence of an earlier supercontinent which broke apart and its fragments subsequently collided and coalesced together to form Pangea. Now there's a restaurant here in town called Pangea. That's not what formed after the flood, just to be clear. And they understand this because of the deposition of different minerals and different fossil evidences that are evident from one part of the globe to another. There are core components called cratons. So that's helpful as geologists look and speculate what Rodinia looked like. But the geologists are still unsettled about many of the details. There are multiple ways to fit it together. Nobody can agree how much of the edges are missing or the precise location of some fragments, such as South China or Australia. Reconstructing Noah's world, the Rodinia, is very complex. But we do have a reasonable picture of what happened at the catastrophic initiation of the flood. Huge plumes of molten rock blasted the underside of Earth's crust like massive blowtorches. Eventually, the crust was ripped apart, and steam and molten rock burst forth. The supercontinent collapsed with slivers of land sliding into the ocean at the margins. It must have been horrific. The one certainty we have about the pre-flood world is the Creator's brief eyewitness account given in His Word. We have forever lost the world which, where Noah lived. It was ripped apart and wiped away by the global flood cataclysm. The clues are a sober reminder of Christ saying that when he comes, all mankind, circumstances will resemble Noah's day when the flood came and took them all away. So Rodinia and then Pangaea. In 1859, geologist Antonio Snyder Pellegrini noticed the jigsaw puzzle fit of North and South America with Europe and Africa if the Atlantic Ocean basin were closed up. You've seen that graphic that I have on the screen. That's pretty common. Uh, That was the birth of the catastrophic plate uh, plate tectonics model, which provides a physical mechanism for the ripping apart of the pre-flood supercontinent. The upwelling molten rock from the underlying mantle that helped to propel the mountains and the continental fragments across the globe opened up new ocean basins and colliding to produce today's mountains. Pangea was not Noah's lost world. But when we remove the Atlantic Ocean and put the pieces back together again, so take your image of our globe today, and you put it back together, you can see the puzzle pieces that Snyder Pellegrini observed. By the way, Antonio Snyder Pellegrini looked at the evidence, and compared the evidence with what he read in Genesis chapter 1, 9 through 10. So he was a man who looked at evidence and God's revelation. Well, there is a mountain chain that is known as the appalachian caledonian Mountains. And you see in the graphic on the screen, two parts, the Appalachian or Appalachian chain, in North America, and then you also see it in Scandinavia, the Caledonian Mountains. The fossil evidence, the types of stone, are evidence that these two parts were together at one time. And that's one of the things that geologists look to in understanding how did these plates move around the globe. So. We know that it's not the created continent. It could not have been the pre-flood supercontinent that Noah lived on. It could have only been a temporary merger of continental fragments during the flood, lasting no more than a mere few weeks. Pangea was a supercontinent during the flood. Where was it during the flood? It was underwater. It was underwater. So, there's still lots of speculation there, but there are reliable clues existing to aid geologists. Now, it's important to say this. Tools and findings of geologists are very helpful in understanding how the earth was shaped before and after the worldwide flood. While the interpretation of data may differ, we can receive many finds and discoveries as reliable and trustworthy data points as we study God's creation and his hand upon creation. So there's a question. How do we know that the flood was worldwide? And I'm going to have the uh, folks in the sound booth go ahead and play a video for us on this very topic. This is from Answers in Genesis.
1: Was the flood of Noah global or local in extent? The question of whether the flood was global or local in extent is ultimately a question about the authority of the Scriptures. After all, the scientists, the geologists in particular, declare that the earth is millions and billions of years old and there never was a global flood. Thus, many Christians say, well, it doesn't really matter. Let the scientists deal with the science. We'll just focus on the Gospel. But we need to remember that if Genesis cannot be trusted, then how we can we trust John 3.16? It's a question of all of Scripture or none of Scripture. Now, the geologists say that the earth is billions of years old because they believe in slow and gradual processes over millions of years. Sure, they believe in local, local floods and local catastrophes, but never a global flood. Yet when we look at the language of the Scriptures, The intent of what we read there with all the high hills under the whole of the heaven being covered with water, the waters rising for 150 days until the mountains were covered, certainly appears to be describing a global event. Now, the context of the flood account in Genesis 1 to 11 is on the question of universal origins, the origin of the universe, the earth and everything in it, the flood and then on to the Tower of Babel and the origin of languages. The context is universal. Whereas when we go to Genesis 12 through 50, the focus is on Abraham and his descendants, the children of Israel, the origin of the the nation of Israel. Therefore, in the context of universal origins, the flood is described as a global event. There are three chapters devoted to the flood account and yet only two to the creation account. Therefore, the flood with three chapters must be very important. And again, the context declares that it was uh, global in extent. The Bible talks about all flesh corrupted its way. God said He was gonna destroy the whole earth. Why would He wanna do that? Destroy all the animals as well as man if it wasn't to be a global event. I mean, the, the terms that are used there as some of the Hebrew scholars have said, the spirit of the language, the intent is to describe a global event. And after all, if the Holy Spirit wanted to choose the words to give us that impression, then the Holy Spirit could not have chosen better words to describe the extent of the flood. Now, there are theological problems too with this whole question. After all, if the flood was only local and the fossils are a result of uh, millions of years, then that means all the dead things, the fossils accumulated prior to man coming on the earth. That means, of course, that Adam and Eve would have been walking on a fossil graveyard Yet the Scriptures declare that God made a good earth. It wasn't until the curse that we find that death and suffering came into the world. Now this is starkly illustrated by the occurrence of fossilised thorns in sedimentary rocks in Canada that are supposed to be 400 million years old. This is a complete denial of the Scriptures if that was 400 million years old because that means there was fossilised thorns for 400 million years before the Bible tells us that as a result of the curse, thorns and thistles came into existence. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus testified to the historic reality of the flood event. In the context of talking about the future judgment, which will be universal, He declared that in the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking and marrying and the flood came and took them all away. He was talking about a universal, a global flood with with in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter talks about the last day scoffers who will deliberately reject the evidence for creation, the flood, and scoff at the second coming. The second coming will be universal. The creation was universal, was global. Therefore, in context, the flood was global. Now, after all, there are also scientific problems. Why would Noah have to build an ark the size that it was, 450 feet long, if, it, if he, all the animals had to do was to fly and migrate to another location. It doesn't make sense. Why tell Noah to preserve those animals on such a large boat if all they had to do was migrate away? So there are many problems with the denying that the Scriptures are teaching it was a global event. So you see, this is ultimately a question about the authority of the Scriptures. The Scriptures declare the flood was global. Therefore, we believe that the flood was global and therefore the scientists who weren't there who don't know everything must be wrong about their declaration that there never was a global flood. God's word is true and what we see in God's world agrees with what we read in God's word.
0: Okay, that was Dr. Andrew Snelling. Uh, He is affiliated with Answers in Genesis, brilliant man, incredible scholar. Uh, The next point on our outline is what are the evidences for a worldwide flood? What are the evidences for a worldwide flood? And that's a very critical point. There are six points, and you may want to choose one of these as your talking point to remember. When the Bible refers to a worldwide flood in Genesis 7 through 8, that's exactly what it means. Not local, not metaphorical, not some crazy dream. The waters covered the whole earth. Don't just take, you know, my word for it, though. We can look at the evidence that's beneath our feet. Evidence number one fossils of sea creatures high above sea level are due to ocean waters having flooded over the continents. Fossils of sea creatures high above sea level are due to ocean waters having flooded over the continents. We find fossils of sea creatures in rock layers that cover all the continents. For example, most of the rock layers of the walls of the Grand Canyon more than a mile above sea level, contains large numbers of marine fossils. The red wall limestone there contains fossil brachiopods, which is a clam-like organism. Uh, there are marine fossils. There are bryozoans. There are crinoids, which are sea lilies. There are bivalves, which are types of clams. Gastropods, which are marine snails. Trilobites, cephalopods, and even fish teeth. There are fossilized sea fish, shellfish, excuse me, that have been found in the Himalayan mountains. And that's a picture of some of the shellfish that have been found. Ammonites were found in limestone beds in the high mountains of Nepal. Evidence number two, evidence number two, rapid burial of plants and animals. We find extensive fossil graveyards and exquisitely preserved fossils. Billions of nautiloid or ocean fossils are found in the layer within that red wall limestone of Grand Canyon. The layer was deposited catastrophically by a massive flow of sediment. And that includes fish, ichthyosaurs, insects, and other fossils from all around the world, which talk about a catastrophic destruction and burial. It was not a slow fossilization. And think about this. If an animal today, if we're talking about uniformitarianism, where everything is to be interpreted as what we see today, if an animal falls in the woods or an animal falls near a riverbed, what happens to that animal? Does it immediately get covered up and is fossilized? No, what probably happens is that there's decay, that there are scavenger animals that will come and feast upon the carcass, maybe even take some of the bones away, all right? It doesn't, get fossil, it doesn't get fossilized. It's a very, very fast process that is indicated by these fossil graveyards. And here you see two pictures. Perhaps the most challenging fossil dilemma for a Darwinian apologist to explain are the vast graveyards and of animal renames found throughout the world. 25 theropod dinosaurs have been discovered along with the 200 skulls of mammals, two totally different ages. Mammals are not supposed to have existed at the same time as the majority of dinosaurs. The Gobi Desert in Central Asia is one of the Earth's most desolate places, yet the Gobi is a paradise for paleontologists. The American Museum of Natural History, together with the Mongolian Academy of Sciences, have excavated dinosaurs, lizard, and mammals in an unprecedented state of preservation. It's as if they found freshly exposed skeletons, which look more like a recent remains of a carcass than 80 million year old fossils. You know, the rocks of Gobi appear to be missing precisely the strata, the layers, the geologic layers that currently hold the greatest public interest. And there's no evidence of the problems that existed creating the extinction of dinosaurs. One of the most fascinating fossil graveyards of all time is located in the southern United States. The Ashley Beds is an enormous phosphate graveyard that contains mixed remains of man and land and sea animals. Dinosaurs, plesiosaur, whales, sharks, rhinos, horses, mastodons, mammoths, porpoises, elephants, deer, pigs, dogs, and sheep. Have you heard about this in your high school science classes? The probability is no, because it doesn't link up with the evolutionary or present geologic projections concerning the age of the earth and how we explain the various layers in the geologic strata. The mixing of remains pell-mell through a 40 square mile in a deposit around Charleston, South Carolina, bones make up 65% of the extraordinary phosphate deposits. Now most of that has been mined away. So you have the mining of these bones for mineral purposes. Evolutionists have tried to understand a credible mechanism for mixing creatures from the Cretaceous to the Holocene in one layer, but none have been satisfactorily answered. Well, Joe Taylor, a premier fossil, uh, creator of fossil casts, has analyzed many sites around the world. In the United States, he found a profusion of skeletons in a hillside dinosaur graveyard in New Mexico. It's the famous Bone Cabin Quarry of Wyoming as well, and other sites in Alberta, Canada, there's a huge graveyard stretching for hundreds of miles and holds innumerable dinosaur bones. And I, Agate Springs, Nebraska, there's a fossil graveyard of around 9,000 animals found buried in alluvial deposits. That includes rhinos, three-toed horses, camels, giant wild boars, birds, plants, trees, seashell, and fish. They are mixed and intermingled in great confusion. Tanzania, Belgium, and Mongolia also have similar massive fossil graveyards that mix animals that are supposedly from different evolutionary or geologic ages. There's another one in South Africa. The one in South Africa, we can only speculate how many creatures are contained in that graveyard. One mind-boggling estimate says that there are over 800 billion animals. And again, they're of different creatures from different geologic and evolutionary scales and times. How many of you have heard of this? I see that hand. One hand in a, in a group of about 60. These are evidences of a worldwide global flood and lend credence to a biblical understanding of the geologic strata and fossil evidence. Evidence number three. Um, Let me see, am I correct here? As well as anyway, yep, right this one. Evidence three, rapidly deposited sediment layers spread across vast areas. We find rock layers can be traced all the way across continents, even between continents, and physical features in those strata indicate that they were deposited rapidly. For example, the terpete Sandstone and Redwall Limestone that I've referred to before in Grand Canyon can be stretched and traced across the entire United States up into Canada, here I hope you appreciate that, and across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The chalk beds of England featured here. You've heard of the White Cliffs of Dover? You've heard of that? It's a picture of that. They can be traced across Europe into the Middle East and also found in the Midwest of the U.S. and into Australia. Again, pointing to a great deposition on a continent below the water levels and then a spread of those crusts, those layers, across the globe. Evidence number four. The sediment was traveled or transported across long distances. We find that sediments in those widespread quickly deposited rock layers had to be eroded from distant sources and carried long distances by fast moving water. The sand for the Casino Sandstone of Grand Canyon in Arizona had to be eroded and transported from northern portion of what is now the United States and Canada. There are water indicators such as ripple marks preserved in rock layers that show that the quote 300 million years unquote water currents were consistently flowing from northeast to southwest across all of North and South America, which is, of course, possible through a few weeks in a global flood. Evidence number five, evidence number five. There is rapid or no erosion between strata or strata. Here in this picture, you'll see uh, in the Grand Canyon, and you'll see the red wall limestone there on the right side of the image. <laughs> the top two layers under the Toe Weep formation are the Casino Sandstone and the Hermit Shale. Now, these are separated by about 10 million years. But there's no boundary layer between the two. There's an entire layer missing of the geologic record. This is a problem, this is a problem. There should be another whole layer between the two. There's no evidence of erosion, no evidence of the moving of the layers. Evidence number six, many strata are laid down in rapid succession. When rock moves, earthquakes, when rock moves that we can see, Rocks break because they're hard and brittle. Here, in the image that's on the screen, you see a bent sedimentary rock. Sedimentary, of course, is rock that is compressed together with many layers, and it's a hard rock. If you were to take sedimentary rock and seek to bend it, it would break. But here, as you can see, the rock bends 90 degrees. It's almost a semicircle. Well, that is explained by a worldwide flood where materials are settling and then moving. They're still moist and flexible and pliable to form something like this. Well, I've talked to and referred to geologic columns uh, quite a bit in this lecture, and here's, here's a picture that's helpful. The one on your left is colorful. It you know has different animals and fossil specimens that are appropriate for the age of the time scale, and on your right and what you have on your handout is the uh, geographic, uh, geologic column. And some of us here who are old enough to remember have mnemonic devices that will help them remember the order of their Precambrian, cambrian cambrian, silurian, devonian, mississippian, pennsylvanian, and permian. Say that five times fast. Um, as you can see from the graph that's on your handout. Uh, There are different creatures and different animals that are supposed to be uh, representative of those different ages, and as you go up in the column, the creatures uh, over millions and millions of years become more complex. The geologic column is a representation of the layers of the rock that make up the Earth's crust. Historic geologists have developed this tool to help with data found in geologic studies. From the uniformitarian principle, the planet has evolved gradually from a molten ball to a water-covered planet where mountains are continuously eroded, uplifted, rocks are recycled through the Earth's crust and mantle over billions of years. The geologic column is used as a support for biologic evolution, which is then sometimes used to confirm the order of the layers in the geologic column, which is an example of circular reason. I'm going to use the evidence over here to prove my concept about something over here. I'm going to use something over here to prove my preconceived notions about something over here, circular reasoning. All right, well, let's look at a biblical perspective, shall we? A biblical perspective. From the biblical creationist perspective, perspective, there are several events that must be considered when interpreting the evidence of history, of God forming The original rocks and layers. These layers and rocks were then catastrophically rearranged and redeposited during the Genesis flood. As the waters covered the earth and later flowed off the continents as mountains rose, the major erosional features like the Grand Canyon here in the United States and Uluru, which is part of Australia's Northern Territory, we formed. Modern examples of canyon formation and rapid erosion provide models to explain how many formations as described by the scriptures and worldwide flood can be rapidly achieved. Anybody think of a, a, an ecological event within most of our lifetimes, aside from you guys, didn't happen during your lifetime something that happened in North America that resulted in rapid canyon formation Mount Mount St. Helens exactly and so we see canyons formed rapidly it did not take millions and billions of years it took a very short time There are several assumptions of historic geology. Younger rocks should be on top of older rocks. Number one, younger rocks should be on top of older rocks. Number two, fossils can be dated by where they are found in the strata. Fossils can be dated by where they are found in the strata. Number three, and this is the circular reasoning, Strata can be dated by their fossils. you think you have a dating problem? Sorry, bad joke. By the way, how's your hand? Good. Surgery went well? Yeah, I saw the big bandage. Impressive. All right, and number four, certain fossils can be used as index fossils, indicated the estimated age for the rock strata. Well, there's a problem when index fossils from two different time periods are found in the same rock strata. The massive graveyard, remember we just talked about that? Where you have different creatures from different supposed ages that are found in the same common graveyard? Big issue. All right, so let's talk about the geologic problem found, uh, problems. Uh, the geologic column uh, challenges include the problem of overthrusts. A geologic column challenge is that of overthrust. Evolutionists explain that example that I gave before where a younger rock, is under older rock instead of the younger rock being on top as an overthrust issue. When an overthrust occurs, that's when it leaves plenty of evidence, gouging, brown rock and powder, brachias, slick inside, which is polished stone when stones rub against each other like smooth pebbles you might find on the the, uh, ocean floor or in a river striated stone if you look at a stone and you see white marks some of them look like staircases that's striated stone and the following documented case that evidence is absent and what you see on the screen is called the Lewis thrust fault the Lewis thrust fault it's in the Glacier National Park in Montana it's about 300 miles long and about 50 miles wide and the precambrian strata which is about a billion years old is on top of the younger cretaceous sandstone which is 150 million years old again remember the assumption younger rocks are on top of older rocks okay but here you have that reversed and there's a problem there's no evidence that these layers were moved By geologic forces which would leave evidence such as broken and crushed rock, polished rock, okay, or any striated rock which would show that there was movement. Here's another uh, example for you that's perhaps a little bit more clear. So you have the Cretaceous Shale that's on the bottom, 150 million years old, and the larger uh, mountain there that's called Chief Mountain, That's the younger, excuse me, that's the older rock at a billion years old. Well the alternate theory that geologists would offer to explain this is that the original rock sheet was three miles high and covered 12,000 square miles. It's just an inadequate speculation and points to the fact that it's thoroughly reasonable to think that the geologic time scale is an error. Here's another problem that geologists face. Another problem that geologists face are polystrate, polystrate fossils, where a fossil will go between the various strata. Here you see an example of fossilized trees that are going up and through various layers. If these layers were created by geologic forces and the fossil evidence was contained within the layers, how in the world could it have been possible for a tree to exist over millions and millions of years, become fossilized without decaying and be found in places like this? So you see the vertical tree trunks, right? And you can see evidence the various layers again if it were a tree that were being that was being flooded in various layers and deposited over time the tree would have deso- you know just decayed you would not see this there's a problem there polystrate fo- uh, fossils are an exception to the rule but they're known to all geologists. Frequently trees are found protruding out of coal streams into the strait above, and perhaps extending into a second coal stream several feet above the first. Coal is supposed to have been formed 300 million years ago. However, the following human artifacts have been found in coal. A small steel cube, an iron pot, an iron instrument, a nail, a bell-shaped vessel, a bell, a jawbone of a child, a human skull, two human molars, a fossilized human leg. This is a challenge to the geologic columns. Well, it's been well demonstrated that rapidly moving sediment-laden fluids can result in an abundance of laminations or layers. We do it in lab experiments and even, as was mentioned before, catastrophic events like the eruption of Mount St. Helens. A better interpretation of past deposits would stem from the acceptance of a rapid, intense geologic process such as Noah's flood. Everybody with me? We're going to watch another video. Again, Dr. Andrew Snelling from Answers in Genesis, and the question he's asking is, how does an understanding of the worldwide flood help us to understand the formation of the Grand Canyon?
1: When and how did the Grand Canyon form? The Grand Canyon is 277 miles long, varies from 3,000 to 6,000 feet deep, and 4 to 18 miles wide. It's the only natural feature on the Earth's surface that can be seen from the moon. So how and when did the Grand Canyon form? Well, there's three undisputed observations. First of all, everyone agrees that the plateau was there before the Colorado River. But that creates a problem because you see the headwaters of the Colorado River are at a lower elevation than the plateau itself. So how could the the water go uphill to carve out the Grand Canyon? And then everyone agrees on the scale of the erosion, 1,000 cubic miles from the canyon itself and 100,000 cubic miles of rock layers from above the rim rocks of the Grand Canyon. So how did the Grand Canyon form when it actually cuts through a plateau? It, It doesn't go around the plateau. In fact, the headwaters of the Colorado River are at a lower elevation than the plateau, it cuts through. And everyone agrees that the plateau was there before the Colorado River got there and carved, supposedly carved out the Grand Canyon. Well, it couldn't carve out the Grand Canyon if it's at a lower elevation, its headwaters are at a lower elevation than the canyon itself. Now, there's always been a secular controversy about when exactly it formed, the Grand Canyon. The the conventional geologists have argued whether it was 70 million years ago when the plateau was uplifted, or even as recently as six million years ago. They don't know. They also don't know how it, it formed. Originally they thought that the Colorado River carved out the canyon slowly because the plateau rose slowly at the same speed and so it kept on cutting down as the plateau went up. But that doesn't work because of the dating and the plateau being there before the Colorado River was. So now they think, well, uh, there was a stream that, that eroded from the west through the plateau to capture the headwaters of the Colorado River that were then draining out through the little Colorado River. But that doesn't make sense because you still have the same problems of what slow and gradual erosion can accomplish. But we do know that there is evidence there in the Grand Canyon of rapid and recent catastrophic erosion. For example, the debris from the Grand Canyon is not in the Delta of the Colorado River. The cliffs are stable. There's no debris at the bottom of the cliffs. If it was millions of years of slow erosion, there should still be large amounts of debris or talus at the bottom of the cliffs, but they're not there. It's as if it was all swept away when the canyon was carved. And that makes sense. We know of examples of catastrophic erosion. On March 18, 1982, a mud flow from the sides of Mount St. Helens ripped its way hundred foot deep into a canyon system that formed one-fortieth the scale of the Grand Canyon. Then we know from uh, from the evidence that in the Channel Scablands in the Pacific Northwest, 500 cubic miles of water burst through a natural dam, and in 48 hours eroded out a 15,000 square miles area. So when was the Grand Canyon formed? Well, if we look at the evidence in the light of God's Word, it's clear that as the flood waters retreated, the mountains rose, the valleys sank, and those waters would have drained off the plateau country that was rising up to rip off that 100,000 cubic miles of rock. And then as the water's flow receded and slowed down, it would start to carve a channel. But by that time, the plateau was so high, it was damming those receding flood waters to the east, making huge natural natural dams. That dammed water was added to by post-flood rainfall, so that eventually the spillway of that natural dam overflowed and a lot of water, a little bit of time burst through and ripped out the Grand Canyon. So when we examine the evidence in God's world, in the light of God's Word, we see agreement. And that's exactly what we would expect because God is a true and faithful witness.
0: When we examine the that God in God's world with God's Word, we are affirmed in our faith, and trust in his comprehensive, accurate, reliable word. We talked about eight particular items. Fossils a mile or more above sea level, rapid mass burial of specimens from a wide variety of geologic ages, a rapid deposition of sediment over vast areas, Sediment transported long distances. Rapid or no erosion between strata. Many strata laid down in rapid succession. The problem of overthrusts, not fitting geologic column age. And the polystrate fossils. So those are the things that we've discussed. Hopefully one of these will be something that you can either do more research on so that you can feel confident when talking to friends, neighbors, relatives, school chums, and pointing out reasons for your faith. Questions? Yes? Well, I think that's a great question. And you're right. You know, we talked about in at least one example an alternative explanation to some of the things. The question is, you know, we can always come up with alternative explanations. So what do we do, you know, for each other and especially for young Christians? How do we handle it? First off, I do always recommend that we, number one, remain respectful and not, you know, overreacting emotionally on this. Number two, I always recommend that we do not forsake the gospel in our discussions. Number three, I think we can honestly say, you know, here's one of the reasons why I have problems with this explanation. And provide that item. We don't have to memorize everything that we talk about in these classes. But if there's one thing that you can say, hey, here's the reason why I have problem accepting this presupposition, this theory. And you're confident in that. You've done maybe a little bit of homework. And you say, what do you think about that? Can you, can you see how this evidence understood in light of God's word can point to the reality and the validity of God's word? Are you open-minded enough to consider that? And I think that's, that could be helpful. Does that address your question? You know... We're not going to, you know, God doesn't change our hearts because we accept an intellectual argument. You know, he does it, you know, by his grace and mercy. And so praying is the first thing, but then presenting, you know, the truth in a winsome manner, you know, not forsaking the gospel. Another question. I must be a great teacher. I mean, man. Wow. And you must be incredible students. Just, just grasping all of this stuff so quickly. <coughs> yes, Ben. Now a lot of this scientific uh, speculation seems
1: uh, very much uncertain to me. Could you speak to what do we actually know for sure based on the biblical text, and what are we speculating
0: about? So Ben's question is, there's a lot of speculation here uh, on uh, the theories that are presented, whether you're looking at an old earth theory or uh, the creation, young earth, you know, uh, model. And uh, I would have to agree, yes, there is speculation. Now, where do we come down that we can say, I know or I have, you know, solid uh, reason to believe that this is true? Um, I would point to a presupposition that the Christian has, the Christian is given a love for, and a trust in God's Word. That's part of, I believe, the conversion experience where our mind is renewed by the washing and regeneration of the Word. Um, So that is the primary reason for our confidence, number one. Number two, I think that our confidence is bolstered by an interpretation of the data in light of the biblical record. Because as we've said before in a number of our classes, that the data is there. It's simply, how are you interpreting it? Are you interpreting it from an old earth evolutionary perspective? Are you interpreting it from the perspective that God is true in his word? Um, so yes, there is speculation. Um, and of course, you need to come from a position where you believe that your position is correct. And if not, you're going to change it. Um, I'm not certain that that answers your question altogether, but I hope it's, it's a little helpful, Ben. He's not raising his hand or walking out, so I, I guess I addressed some of it. Yes? One more silly question. My kids asked me two days ago, did all the sea creatures die in the flood? <laughs> That's a great question. Did all the sea creatures die in the flood? And I'm going to throw that out to uh, the class of scholars. Uh, scholars, did all the sea creatures die in a flood? No. 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 Okay. So how could we understand this? So you have a, a mixing of the saltwater creatures with freshwater creatures. If you do that today, when I went to Korea, um, one, of my, one of the meals that I did not enjoy was a meal that involved sea slugs. Sea slugs are saltwater creatures, and they uh, they poach them in fresh water. And as they did that, this sea slug swelled up quickly, because sea creatures that live in saline or salt water absorb water from you know salt water very rapidly. So it swelled up pretty quickly. Um, it wasn't tasty at all. I don't recommend sea slugs as a steady diet. Um, <clears throat> So if that's going to happen, if the sea creatures are, that are in salt water all of a sudden are now in water that's less saline, you know, what's, what's going to happen to them? Will they all die or will they all die? Like we talked about the plesiosaur, the ichthyosaur that are now in fossilized evidence as dying in a flood. How do we understand that? How are sea creatures preserved in a worldwide flood? Yes. God have and there are
1: There's like a looks like an invisible wall.
0: Mhm. and Yeah. There are some places where it's not missable. The salt water and fresh water will be fresh. There are also estuaries where salt water and fresh water are mixed and creatures do go back and forth across that line. And the third thing is that God was behind this whole thing. Could He have preserved these creatures and the the, the uh, uh, in the water? Yes, brother. You have a question. As far as we know, there were no aquatic critters on the ark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we still have water critters, yeah. And they're delicious, so. So I, I don't know if that's going to answer the kiddos' questions, but that's a good question. I'm glad they're thinking. I'm glad they're asking those questions. And uh, Answers in Genesis, uh, the Creation Museum, the, the ark have lots of literature that's available. You can go online, and uh, I think there are helpful children's books that answer some of these questions, especially about dinosaurs, which is, I think, the greatest publicity that the evolutionists ever had. Uh, We're at 9.52. I'll invite anybody else who has questions to come on up uh, and ask them after so we can uh, get ready for worshiping with the rest of God's people here. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, the reality that we can indeed trust you, that we can have confidence in your word. Lord, we do pray that as we speak to those who have different understandings of how this world was fabricated, Lord, that we would be able to point to the Lord Jesus through whom all things were created, that we would be able to help people see that there is a more reliable understanding that does not have the problems that we've talked about in this class lord help us to be used of you in a mighty way and we thank you for this time and we thank you for our brother's surgery that went well but i pray that he would continue to heal up quickly and we praise you in your son's name amen